Thanks for joining me on the Football CFB podcast, Paul. It's a pleasure to have you on. Thanks, Callum. Thanks for the invite. I appreciate it. I want to start with your commentary. That's what you're you're most well known for, especially for me. You're a voice of my childhood growing up, to be honest with you. What's the preparation like for any live television match or any live radio broadcast that you're commentating on? There's a slight difference between the two. Uh, if it's live radio, you can tend to be more generic. If it's live television, I try and have more player-specific information because when you're on television, you get more close-ups of players, so you might need a you know a line or two on each player as far as that's concerned. When, it, when it's radio, it's more generic. You can pick uh, what you're looking to highlight, but uh, probably like other commentators, I do far too much research and I'm happy not to use it if the game's good. What you need to do is to be able to have information to hand at the right time, at the right point in the game to land it. There's no point in looking at you know two or three really good facts and trying to shoehorn them in to a broadcast simply because you think that that's what should happen. You've got to go with the flow of the game, and you've got to see what's relevant. I mean, I probably use 10, 15, 20% of what I prepare on any given game I can spend hours preparing for a game. I try and give every game, you know, the same preparation where I can. But then there's special games like internationals or cup finals that you go that extra mile for because you know you're you're going to be under more of a spotlight and you want to make sure because it's a big occasion you can deliver. I've been lucky enough to speak to a few commentators so far and, and I've asked them all this same question. What would you say is the most challenging aspect of football commentary? The most challenging aspect now is the scrutiny you get from social media. I don't think the actual commentary has changed greatly, but there are so many people waiting to seize upon the smallest statistical mistake, the smallest identification mistake, and and everybody's allowed an opinion. And, you know, people can can get you for for the slightest thing. There's also a lot more information available on the Internet. You know, I'm not that old, but when I started, there wasn't an Internet for you to look at. You're relying on newspapers, programs, statistical books and information and talking to people. Now there's an awful lot more around. I think we live in a slightly more critical age. So I think people want to. Well, I, I can't speak for others. I'm going to make mistakes at some point. And they are my mistakes. So all the preparation, all the information, all the statistics, if I get something wrong, it's because I've got it wrong. It's not because somebody's handed it to me. But I just, you know, I like player identification. I like to work on that to make sure I get the players right. And that can be a challenge if it's a team you've not seen. Is commentating on a boring nil-nil game a real challenge? Is that the sort of game where all your research com- com- comes to the forefront because you're trying to, to really fill the broadcast with some snippets of joy in otherwise a dull game? Well, it depends if it's radio or television. So, for example, on radio, you can't make a game sound better than it is, but what you want to do is keep people listening. So how you engage with your co-com, how you describe the action, as you mentioned, some of the nuggets and information that you have. Let's be honest, anybody can make a decent game sound good. Even bad commentators can make a good game sound good it's the best commentators for me are the ones that actually can make you want to keep watching or listening when the the game is a bit dull or tedious 
or doesn't mean as much to you because you enjoy the work that that person does and the way they describe, the way they use language. I say, anybody can do a good game. There's not overly much skill in that. You mentioned cool commentary there. Is part of being the, the lead commentator developing a really good relationship with your co-commentator and and how do you build that relationship up with a co-com? Do you meet up with them before the games? Do you maybe speak to them on the phone a few days beforehand? Or is it a case of turning up on the day and, and, and both of you preparing and just getting on with it? I think there's a little mixture. I mean, you know, once you get to know people, and that's when I basically started commentating, I pretty much knew all the co-coms from seeing them at grounds or chatting to them beforehand. So there's usually a little relationship there. If you're meeting for somebody for the first time and you're doing a commentary, you've got to sit and have a chat about player pronunciation, about what happens if certain things happen in the game. You know, if it's a really bad game, where are you wanting to take it? If it's a good game, just to say, look, you know, we can hang back. If it's television, it's a good game. Sometimes, you know, don't be afraid to let the game breathe. You know, we don't have to talk all the time. That's one of the big mistakes that's made on television, that if a commentator's allowing a time of silence, because people can see the action, you don't want the co-commentator jumping in. I used to work a lot with Ian McCall, and, you know, Ian and I would have a good chat beforehand. Um, if, it, if we were abroad covering a game, we'd probably meet for a coffee or lunch on the day of the game, have a chat about about the game. And, and Ian knew that if I was given a break and he wanted to say something, give him a wee tap, tap on the arm, and I'd give him the thumbs up or thumbs down to come in or out. You know, we view it as a team. But, you know, as the lead, you are trying to lead. And Ian and I worked really well that way. One of the things I'm interested to ask about is, see, when you're commentating, can you hear the producer, whether it's TV or radio or in your ear? Do you prefer that or do you like to just be on your own? Oh, no, it's part, part of the skill set. You've got to be able to listen to what's going on around you. So in television, you're hearing the match director. Uh, sometimes the producer will speak to you as well. You've got to hear what the match director is saying. And it's a two-way conversation as well. We have what's called the lazy button where we can cut the sound to the broadcast and speak to the director. So if you've got something you want to say or a point you want to make, you know, you can say, look, in the next break and play, can you show me Scott Brown? You know, that's the two-way interaction and the good directors will work with you on that and sure enough, lo and behold, next break and play, you've got a picture of Scott Brown and you're able to talk and develop a point that you want to make. So it's a two-way conversation. But yes, you've, you've got to be aware of all of that. Now, radio is slightly different in the fact that usually what you're getting is updates on other games and score lines that you're having to give out. The good producers know when to feed you score lines, so not in the middle of a, an attack that may lead for a goal. Uh, they know when to feed you. They know how to say, look, you know, there's been a goal at Rugby Park, get down to check. And that's what you've got to handle. It's part of the gig. Some people can handle it and some people don't. I actually really like it. I find it quite quite thrilling in a sad kind of way. <laughs> in terms of yourself, Paul, how did you get into football commentary? Was it something you always wanted to do from a young age? Well, I've been a, I was obsessed with radio from a young age, listening to a lot of sport on radio, you know, from Radio Scotland, David Francie, from the American Forces Network, the baseball and American football, from where I developed my love of American sports. I always had a love of radio. I always had a love of football. I was obsessed with, with football as a kid. And growing up, I, I had a wee spell at Tynecastle Boys Club where the two star players were Scott Crabb, who went on to play for Hearts and Dundee United, and Brian Welsh, who went on to play for Hibs and Dundee United. And 
I think the first training session that I was at, I saw those two players and they were head and shoulders above anybody else. And I knew I wasn't going to be a professional. I mean, it, all, it took about 10 minutes to realise that. Because we all think, as a kid, we all think we're pretty good. We all think we're pretty fast. or We all think, you know, we can score goals and things like that. But I could tell these guys were at a different level. And that kind of pushed me down the path of radio rather than, than trying to play professionally. In terms of your playing career uh, when you were younger, what position did you play, Paul? Uh, I, I started off as a left fullback in my BB team, but I then became a sort of left-sided forward player. And probably today's terms, I would either played on the left wing and also you'd play out on the right for the opposite foot, or I could sit off um, a much taller number nine at the time because I had the pace to, to get on the end of things and knock down. I was decent. We all like to think we were better than we are. I was decent. <laughs> I had an eye for goal. I loved doing what I could do. I could tackle as well as a forward, which was possibly quite unusual. Uh, but I knew I wasn't good enough, but I loved it. In terms of playing the game, you, you talked about playing on the left side. You had an eye for goal. You played alongside Crab and some players who went on to have professional careers. What I'm interested to ask you about is your football and heroes growing up. You mentioned your broadcasting heroes and David Francie there, who Derek Ray actually mentioned um, David is a, a real hero of his as well growing up. Who were your heroes from a playing perspective? From a playing perspective, I mean, I was brought up as a Hearts fan and I was brought up being taken to Middlebank because my dad thought it was too violent to go to Tynecastle in the sort of uh, late 70s, early 80s. It wasn't at times a great place to be. I guess, I mean... Because he was there so long, Henry Smith at Hearts is one of my, my all-time heroes simply because he was there for so long and I was watching so many games with Henry between the sticks. They say never meet your heroes, which is largely true, I have to say, but I have met Henry. He's a wonderful guy. I was able to interview him professionally. I've spoken to him a couple of times as well, and he's just a genuinely nice bloke. So a lot of people from that, that Hearts team you know, so you're looking at Gary Mackay, who I've worked with, John Robertson, who I've worked with. You know, people like that were were just the guys that I watched week in, week out, and they become your heroes. Going back to the commentary element, Paul, do you remember your first commentary game and what was it like stepping into the the broadcasting arena, if it will, for for the first time? My first game on Radio Scotland was 1991. It was Hibs Morton from, from Easter Road, which was just dropping into the main Sports Sound programme. My first commentary came in 1998, um, and it came in Iceland. Radio Scotland, the teams were doing well in Europe. Radio Scotland were a little bit stretched for staff, so they asked if I would go to Iceland to cover Kilmarnock against KR Reykjavik. Now, I'd done a few dummy commentaries. I'd done some lift and lays, which was, you know, goal, you know, talking when the action got close to goal, and I'd done some goal action. I think they thought, you know, I'd be capable of doing it, and that was the first game I got, and I then got the return leg, and then I did some Sunday night football, which it was shortly after that when the SPL was on on a Sunday night. I started to do some games. I mean, Radio Scotland were lucky at that time. They had David Begg and Alistair Alexander, two absolute stalwarts, both slightly different styles, but both absolutely brilliant in the broadcast sense. But as the number of games started to be played on different days, that opened up a wee opportunity and I started to get more commentary games. In terms of getting that first game under your belt, the first few games, is it very much like the way we describe a player? The more games you get under the belt, the more confident you become? 
I think you work out more the more the of what you want to do and how you want to do it in terms of how you get your notes, how you lay your notes out. I've been with BBC since 91, so it was 98 when I did my first commentary. So I had seven years around broadcasting. I'd been to the studio to watch how it's produced. I'd worked pitch side when Alistair Alexander and David Begg were doing commentary, so I was able to watch them. I think I was really fortunate because I had a really good apprenticeship watching all these great people. And to be fair, I thought I was ready when I got the chance and I took that chance. But yeah, it's more about how you how you lay things out, how notes go, how you know where you put things. So when you're looking for a fact of information, and over the years, I mean, I, I tinker constantly, Callum, just with little bits and pieces. But really, since last ten, twelve years, how I prepare has stayed pretty much the same. And you mentioned that preparation earlier on, and the fact that you don't use as much of it in a live broadcast as. As, as people normally think because as you've said if it's a good game the game will speak for itself and you won't need to, to and you don't want to overload the viewer with information in terms of your commentary Paul what are the, what would you say are the best games or the, 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 the biggest games you've had the most enjoyment out of when it comes to commentating I can honestly say, Cal, there's been very few games I haven't enjoyed covering because even if it's a rotten game, you're working with an ex-player, there's ways to, to get insight, there's ways to learn. So I've done very few what I would class as bad games. Now, there are the big games that I've done. You know, I've done six Scottish Cup finals on television, uh, six League Cup finals on TV. I did a uh, Hibs Hearts Scottish Cup final 2012 was was radio. You know, I've covered over 50 Scotland games. You know, I've been to, you know, France won, uh, France nil, Scotland won, James McFadden scoring. I was at Hamden when Gary Caldwell did the same. San Siro, I mean, it doesn't really get much better than going to the San Siro and doing Italy against Scotland. It's just such a a wonderful occasion. I've been fortunate. I've been away with Kilmarnock, Dundee United, Hearts, Hibs, Aberdeen, Rangers, Celtic, uh, around Europe. And, you know, that's brilliant. I love going to the big crowds where they've got big crowds. And I love going to some of these tiny little places that you'll never go back to again, slightly ramshackle grounds. And it can be a bit of a challenge getting on air, but there's a unique atmosphere about the place. So, I've been very fortunate in terms of, I mean, Hearts-Stuttgart was a terrific game. Hibs AK Athens was memorable for so many reasons. Rangers over in Spain and Pamplona, a few, you know, a good few seasons back was interesting for all sorts of different reasons because, you know, the Spanish police were itching for a fight with the Rangers fans, whether they behaved or not, and they did. Uh, on that occasion, you know, you're, you know, you're trying to commentate in a game where you're well aware that the Spanish police have come into the Rangers fans, so you're trying to mention that, but you know the Spanish director's not likely to show it at, at your request, so you've got to try and guide yourself to the picture. So I've been pr- pretty fortunate. You mentioned that you've commentated <clears throat> on multiple cup finals there. See, when it comes into a cup final environment, it's obviously such a high-profile game for for the fans of those clubs, but also the neutrals watching at home. Do you change your preparation at all for a cup final, Paul, or is it very much business as usual? No, I mean, there's more preparation around. You want to make sure that you know if the guys have played in cup finals before, what medals they have, just in case that becomes a relevant feature. You you tend to do a piece in vision, then you tend to do a little bit longer of a lead up. So you want to make sure that's you know scripted well and interesting, but you don't want to make it sound like it's scripted. You want to follow a pattern. Uh, you want to be prepared for you know for the ending. You know the implication for the winner 
but there's also implications for the losers. You know, and you want to be in a, a position to be sympathetic to the loser and not just ignore them. So, no, doing a cup final or a big international is definitely bigger because you've got more work to do and you just want to make it that little bit more special for people. In terms of the cup final environment there, as you've, you've just said, you want to make it special for the people who are tuning in. Now, obviously, when you're commentating in club football, you've got to be as neutral and as impartial as possible. Does that change at all in your point of view when you're commentating on a Scotland game for BBC Scotland, for instance, because it's well aware you're Scottish, you're commentating on your nation. Can you be, I don't want to say more passionate because your commentary is very passionate. I hope you know what I mean by this. Can you be more forthright? No, I mean, I, I don't like being a homer and I don't like being biased. Uh, don't get me wrong if a Scottish team's playing in Europe I want the Scottish team to win if Scotland are playing I want them to win but I'm there as a broadcaster I'm there as the commentator I'm trying to call the game as impartially as I can and sometimes that means being critical of Scotland sometimes that means being supportive of Scotland but I don't like the use of the word you know we or us um, I, I remember doing it at a Scotland-Lithuania game and I was absolutely furious with myself because it, it's not what I want to be. I view myself as a professional broadcaster, not as a cheerleader, not as a homer or anything like that. Um, yes, I have sympathies, but the, the job is there to commentate on the game. You mentioned the job in hand. Is it even slightly just that wee bit more difficult when you're commentating on a a Scotland game, because as you've said, you don't want to be known as a as a homer and to be biased, but is it hard to try and sometimes hold that in because you are a passionate Scot? I'd be lying if I said yes. I, I don't find it difficult at all. Um, that That's how I programme myself. You know, it's team A and team B, and I want to go and I want it to be a great game. I don't want, you know, you want, if Scotland score it, you want to, to give the passion that the fans will feel if the other team score and it's a great goal, you've got to give that the, the credit that it deserves. And you know, you've, I, I like to be honest. You know, I'm not, I don't like to to say if you know Scotland are well beaten, they're well beaten. It really is that simple. Um, but I don't find it difficult. You, you've commentated in many great occasions. You've commentated on a lot of Scottish football. As I say, you were the voice of my childhood growing up watching. This, the, the cup games on the BBC watching some of the live games in the BBC as well over the years and in radio you also commentated on Match of the Day a fair few times did you enjoy commentating on the English game as much as the Scottish game Paul? Yeah because it, it was a new challenge and I love new challenges I think it was on Match of the Day for about five different seasons couldn't quite make the breakthrough to being you know every week regular which obviously I would have loved to have done but I was it was around for long enough to know I was decent and I enjoyed the games that I did. It it was a challenge it's a challenge dropping into a different league and picking up for one game, knowing that you might not be back for two months and you're gonna get another couple of teams along the way. So there was a lot of work had to go into it. Um I once did a whole lot of preparation on Blackburn against Fulham because that was my game and it got changed because another commentator, more senior, needed to go to that game. And I was given Stoke against West Ham, but the only problem was I wasn't told. And I didn't find out until the Friday lunchtime when I was about to leave to go down to Blackburn, to the hotel, which I would have stayed in overnight. And I got notes through saying, yeah, this, these are the notes for your game tomorrow, um, you know, at Stoke. And I'm like, so I had to phone them and say, 
I'm doing Blackburn. They're going, has nobody told you? So basically, I had to do a game, I, not with, even within 24 hours' notice, because it was a lunchtime kickoff the following day. So I had to work here for several hours, then get down to Stoke uh, to stay in a hotel, uh, because you need to be on site the night before just in case there's any problems travelling. And, uh, you know, I didn't quite work through the night, but it wasn't far off it, put it that way. Jeez, Owen. In terms of that game, how do you feel the game went, considering it was a, a last-minute appointment through no fault of your own? Well, I, I remember it for two things. One was I got to meet Alan Parry at Sky. Uh, I went over and introduced myself because I had to ask him a question, and I explained that I'd only been given the game the day before, and he was very gracious in his help because I needed a piece of information, and that was the quickest way to get it. Uh, the other one, I was told I was getting one player to interview, and I got a different one. And just because there was so much going on, I think the Stoke manager was off at the time. I think he, he'd suffered a bereavement, so I was trying to figure out who the Stoke guy. And uh, I, I called the West Ham player by the wrong name, and he just <laughs> looked at me disgusted. Um, and I just laughed and went, yeah, OK. I got that wrong. Um, the BBC put it out as a separate clip. And, you know, some people say, oh, how could you do that? But, you know, just sometimes you do you do get it wrong. And bless Martin Oberle, he was very nice about it. But uh, that was not my finest hour. But the BBC understood. In terms of, you mentioned interviewing managers and players, who would you say has been, the, who's the sort of toughest manager to interview after a game? Because it's emotionally charged and, after a game, sometimes isn't it the best time to maybe talk to someone? So who would you say has been your most challenging interview? Well, well it's interesting, Callum, because there's different approaches you can take. If you want, if you know somebody's hurting, you know somebody's lost, they know that you've got a job to do and you've got to do the job. But that doesn't mean that you, you've got to antagonise them. You've got to ask the question. They know it's coming, but it's, sometimes it's about the interaction just before the interview that can be key. I had a very sticky interview once with Kenny Dalglish when he was manager of Celtic. I didn't find him particularly uh, good on that occasion. Uh, but what I did is I learned to not be too clever. You know, if somebody's just lost, Martin O'Neill was quite a hard uh, person. But, well, he's quite a shy guy if he didn't know you anyway. So what you want to do is open up with questions that will allow them to get their point across and then, you know, you can develop where you want to go. Managers aren't daft. You know, if they're in serious trouble uh, through the fans or the, you know, relegation trouble, they're not daft. They know the question's coming, but you don't have to twist the knife. You know, you, could, you don't want to make it too easy for them either. You want to ask the right question. And if you can get that wording and that comes with experience, that helps draw a manager, even in a bad situation. There's certain manager, I mean, Bobby Williamson, you know, was grumpy when the Hibs had lost. But if you handled Bobby with the correct questions, he would still be polite and answer your questions. If you didn't, he would go through you. You mentioned Kenny Dalglish there, and obviously he's an icon of football. You're a big football fan. This is a, maybe a daft question, but have you ever been sort of, for want of a better phrase, starstruck at all when you've you've had to interview someone or, or speak to them about football? I've never been starstruck, but I have been a little bit hesitant if you like you know if you are going to meet someone now I'd never met Willie Miller and I had to go and interview him after uh, Hibs had beaten Aberdeen at East of the Road and, and Aberdeen were in a little bit of trouble now you know one of the memories of me for me growing up was was watching Willie Miller lift the cup winners cup one-handed you know back in 83 so I mean he was a big figure in my footballing youth 
And I was a little bit hesitant, thinking, you know, he's just lost. You know, I've, I've known this guy, you know, from afar forever. I wonder what he's going to be like. It wasn't starstruck, but you didn't want to make a fool of yourself either. Yeah. You know, you're a professional broadcaster. You're supposed to go in there and do the job. And I have to say, Willie was as nice as you could have hoped a manager would be to you. And and that was lovely. You mentioned the fact that Willie was, was nice in the circumstances and he's obviously worked to the BBC now for many years. For yourself, growing up with what you've just said, watching people like Willie Miller... See when you eventually get to the point where you call them colleagues, is that a sort of pinch yourself moment? Oh, it's a moment that makes you smile. I mean, there's absolutely no doubt about it. I'll give you an example, Callum. I was at a dinner a number of years ago at Tynecastle that I'd been invited to, and I took along a guest. And at one point, John Robertson, who was one of the speakers, came up behind me, slapped me on the back, you know, hey, how you doing? How you getting on? And I was just aware of my guest being dumbstruck that John Robertson, who was a hero of his, is, is speaking to me as if, you know, he'd known me all my life. But, you know, I'd got to know John reasonably well at that point. I think when you work in football and you meet so many people, you tend to forget that others can be a little bit starstruck. I saw it in Glasgow when I was out uh, at the BBC one day with Craig Patterson. I was chatting away to Craig and somebody I knew came across and was like, wow, that's Craig Patterson, who'd been a real hero of his. You know, Craig lifted the league a couple, of, a couple of times for Rangers and things like that and been Rangers captain. So sometimes you can forget that people can be starstruck. That's, that's a very good point. And it's one of those things where you've summed up perfectly there. It's I, I find this with the podcast, like speaking to your speaking to guys like yourself, as I've said, who I grew up listening to, it's, it's a surreal moment for me. And, and as you've said, it's trying to as you said, that hesitancy of not making a fool of yourself and, and trying to ask questions that, that respect the person in their career. So I, I can totally understand that. And what I'd like to go on to next, Paul, is a project you were involved in that's quite interesting. You were involved in a Nike advert that's, that starred some of the biggest personalities in football, Ibrahimovic, Ronaldo and Neymar, to name but a few. Did you ever get to meet any of those guys as part of that advert or was it just a voiceover for yourself? No, I mean, that advert uh, came about, uh, I have an agent who looks after that, that side of things for me, and if anything pops up, he'll put me forward, which, as you can imagine, is not very often. It's not very often they need football commentators. Uh, I went down to London, and I did a, a read-through, uh, sort of free form of what they wanted. I got called back the following week, and I went in again, and at that point, I came out, and I phoned my agent, and I said, look, I've got this. He said, no, no, he said, don't, you know, don't worry, you know, it doesn't always... I said, no, no, I said, I know. I said, I'm getting this. I said, because I'm up against actors trying to be a football commentator. I'm a football commentator. They cannot mimic what I do. I'm not an actor, but I knew what they were... It was more the voice they were looking for. Um, so I got the part. Um, it was recorded in Spain. I was flown to Spain. I was put up in a hotel. I was taken to... Um, the rehearsal or the rehearsals you, you were taken for the the outfitting you know because everything I wear in that commercial is not mine that was that was all picked out by the wardrobe staff they took I was in about twenty different suits casual wear um, that all got photographed and sent to Nike in in Seattle I think it is certainly Washington uh, they picked what I was to wear I went back the following day I worked with a director we shot at night. I uh, shot between, I think, about 12 at night and 4 in the morning. And um, it it was an incredible 
experience, an utterly incredible experience. Now, I didn't meet these guys that you mentioned, but I met all their lookalikes because they were staying in the same hotel as me. <laughs> what was that experience like? And, and, and did, did anyone who was kind of came into contact with them, did they mistake them for the real thing? I think there was a few people doing a double take. I think they they must have twigged that it wasn't the real people because you don't really find you know, Ibrahimovic and Rooney and 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 at all kicking about in a which was a fairly decent hotel to be fair in Spain. <laughs> um, so it, it was a very surreal experience. I worked with a guy called Andy Andy Cappy, um, and Andy was given the co-coms role. I met Andy. In London, we'd, we'd done a little bit, you know, I worked with three or four different guys and it was Andy. Thankfully, they chose because he was brilliant. I felt even at the time in the room, there was a good chemistry. So Andy and I, uh, you know, we, we met again in Barcelona. Uh, we had dinner together the night before. We went through the script that they'd given us the night before and we went and recorded it. And on this, I think it was the, the Sunday morning, we had coffee together in the hotel on his balcony and you know, I've never actually met Andy again. You know, I've kept in touch with him. You know, we we touch base occasionally on LinkedIn or email occasionally. Uh, but it it was surreal. But it was a wonderful experience. It got great publicity for me, and it still remains, I think, one of the highest uh, watched ever ever videos on on YouTube. It was tremendous, and I couldn't tell anyone about it. That was the other thing. You know, my family knew, but nobody else. And of course, when it started to appear on 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 television. Um, things just went crazy. My phone blew up. I wasn't on social media at the time. My wife tells me that was a mistake and I should have been because I've had thousands of followers. <laughs> um, but, you know, it, it just blew up. People going, is that you? You know, I had the Daily Record on, I had the Sun on, uh, wanting to do articles. Um, I think it was, I think it was the Sun because they asked first, did, did the big one and the Daily Record did a piece. Uh, Bill Leckie did a piece as well on me. So it, it was, it was fabulous. Great time. Something else I'm I'm desperate to to talk to you about is your passion for the NFL and American sports. Something I wasn't really aware of, Paul, with yourself until the sort of last year or so, having followed you on social media platforms. How how did your passion for American sports and the NFL in particular start? Well, it started by listening to them on the radio. Um, you know, when there was no football to listen to on the radio, you know, during the summer or the winter nights, you know, I would fiddle about with the dial so you listen to Radio Luxembourg which was considered wonderfully exotic and that's where my love of music comes from and you know I would listen to these you know weird you know baseball games coming from you know Philadelphia and New York and places like that and I fell in love with the voices because they were describing you know they're thousands of miles away yet these guys were describing in great detail so I could almost see what was going on where they were the colours the weather you know, everything that was happening. And that just opened up the world of radio and sport to me. The NFL is a slightly different pace, but when the baseball season had finished, I would listen to the NFL. And that's where the passion grew. It then came on uh, British television in an area where there wasn't a lot of live sport, certainly not on a Sunday night. So, you know, so I started to, to watch the NFL. It came along at the right time for me. And, and I've just developed my love for, the, for it since then. Was starting your own podcast something that was always an interest to you when it came to the NFL? Uh, no, I'll, I'll give all the credit in the world to that, to, you know, my, my podcast partner, Cameron Hobbs. Cameron uh, thought that this would be a really good idea. And, 
you know, he, you know, he, he basically said to me, you know, do you fancy it? This is what I'm thinking about, and this is where I'd like to go. And you know, what do you think? And it's like, yeah, Cameron, why not? Let, let, let's give this a try. You know, if it works, it works. If it doesn't, it doesn't. Um, and lo and behold, we've managed to get it to work, which has been absolutely fantastic. We've had a great response from people. We've had, you know, we've expanded the NFL Scotland team. So Cameron and I are the main presenters, but we've got another four guys upon whom we call. And a bit like yourself and, and your podcast, you know, we're reaching out to more and more people uh, to see if people want to come on the program and, and join us and, and see what, you know, what we what we can get. So. You know, it's it's really, really interesting. I really enjoy it. It's something different. And it's something I can be passionate about. You know, I don't tend to hide my allegiance. I'm very passionate about American football. And th this gives me the passion to do that. Absolutely amazing. And it's, it's incredible how things like this can just start and take off, as, as I found in my experience too. You've also had a few live events with the podcast that have went down really well. Is that something that's surreal for you in itself as well? It's it certainly, I get, and again, I, I have to give all the credit to Cameron because, you know, th this has been his his brainchild, you know, of getting, you know, like-minded NFL fans together in a room and see if we can, you know, get some guests. We, we don't do it to make money. The money we get is ploughed back into the podcast and buying merchandise and things like that. So it's not something that we do for money. We do it for the love of broadcasting and we do it for the love of the game, which sounds corny, I appreciate, but it does get people together. And I've met people in this sphere that I would never have met otherwise. So, yeah, I really enjoy doing the podcast. You've got the NFL podcast. You're still working away on football programming as well. What does the future hold for you, Paul? Are you are you looking to just continue commentating for as for as long as possible and continue the podcast side by side? Yeah, I mean, anybody will tell you that broadcasting is a precarious business. You never know what's around the corner, good or bad. Um, I mean, I've been around a while now. I've been through a lot of good. I've had a little bit of bad as well. That's what happens in a career. I love what I do. I want to continue doing what I do uh, for as long as, as as I possibly can. I have branched out. I do rugby um, is another one of my sports. I was lucky enough to do the Commonwealth Games in 2014 for bowls. I would like to be involved at the Commonwealth Games in 2022. I would like to continue to develop my rugby relationship with Premier Sports. I've done some commentary for them uh, this year and a little bit of trackside work for them. So you're, you're always looking for, you know, new opportunities uh, to, to see where things will go. But, you know, at heart, I love what I do for BBC Scotland. I love doing the radio. I love doing the telly. And uh, as long as they'll keep having me, I'll keep doing it and keep, you know, doing the very best that I can. There's no such thing as a meaningless game for me. Every game I go and do, I'll prepare for properly, uh, give it the respect it deserves and, and execute to the best of my ability. Fantastic. And I would like to finish with around the quick fire questions. The first one being, who are the best footballers you've commentated on live? Wow. Best players. I mean, Pirlo. Uh, of Italy scored a couple of great goals against Scotland. I just found him amazing. He also played in a position I like, you know, playing wide and coming into the midfield and, you know, so versatile. So Andres Perlo is a player that, I, you know, I absolutely adored watching. Uh, I wasn't really commentating on Brian Loudrup when he was at Rangers because but I was reporting on him. Uh, Henrik Larsson 
absolutely incredible. What a player for Celtic. One of the hardest working players. You know, he wasn't a glory hunter. You know, he scored all the goals, but his work rate to me was quite phenomenal. Used to love watching Henrik Larsson. I was once accused of being a biased Celtic fan after Larsson, I think, put three past hearts at Tynecastle. You're thinking, well, not really, but if that's the impression I gave, then you know, I might have been doing my job as far as that's concerned. So there's been some, some great players that, that I've been able to watch over the years. And, and sometimes it's also looking at, you know, I, I love going down and, you know, covering, you know, the Scottish Cup ties and you see some of the guys who are getting a crack at the big teams and just seeing how they're going to do. A player I always used to like watching was Joe Cardell, you know, who, who was largely known for Dunfermline because, you know, he always seemed to give it his all. So there's, there's different qualities in players that you, that you look for. What would you say is your favourite ground to commentate at and why? Favourite ground? I'll take the San Siro for the history of the place. I will take St James's Park in Newcastle for the sheer and utter organisation and atmosphere of the place. I, I, I did quite a few matches of the race in Newcastle and I loved everyone. I just thought they were such a, at the time, such a well-run and, and decent club to go, to go and work. What I, what I like... Um, from a commentary position and others may be different my ideal commentary position is close to the halfway line halfway up in terms of eye line so you get a good eye line I like to be in a booth uh, that can take two or three people I like to be separated from other people uh, but I don't like necessarily being shut in so you know a booth that's got windows or something you can open or move out Uh, I just like that little sense of space and I don't know what other commentators have, have told you, Callum, but another thing that, that depends whether you like a commentary position or not, can you get to the toilet and can you get for a half-time cup of tea as well? <laughs> that's two things, to be fair. I've actually not, not, not thought about myself. That's a very good point. This one here, and I'm not trying to get you to offend, to offend any football clubs, is there a ground that you don't particularly enjoy commentating or you've had a, a poor experience at, through no fault of the club potentially, just a ground that's makes your job more difficult maybe because of that eye line and viewpoint? Uh, well, there's two things. One, I usually say, I mean, Dunfermline's one of the coldest places to work, but they've moved us from the back of the stand to the front, so that's no longer the case. Um, it's an awful lot better at the front. It was like a wind tunnel at the back. I did Clyde against Celtic um, just, just a month or so ago, and through no fault of Clyde, but the way the wind was coming that day, right across that empty, from the empty end. Um, I, I think the way they placed this is that I was acting as a buffer for Chris Sutton and Rory Hamilton at BT Sport. They can be thankful for that. A small <laughs> buffer, but a buffer all the same. And I just got constantly bombarded with the wind. I wouldn't really like to repeat that in a hurry. Uh, but the worst, I mean, I, I've, I've had some bizarre ones. I, I once commentated from outside Livingston Stadium. I was on the roof of one of the office buildings right in the corner. Because there wasn't room for us in the in the broadcast area, so I I did a game. I couldn't even put my feet down um, together because of all the cables and cameras and things like that. And doing a game from essentially the corner flag, looking across, is one of the most surreal experiences I've had. What about your favourite moment or favourite moments you've commentated on? It could be a goal, it could be an overall game. What would they be? I mean, it's easy to look at the the big moments. You know, James McFadden scoring in Paris is a moment that will stay with me. Uh, Gary Caldwell as well. Uh, I was lucky enough to be... I I did a game for Radio Scotland, which was uh, France-Italy right after the World Cup. 
uh, final between the two that was an amazing night as well. You just remember, you know, the, the, the big the big days, because they mean different things to different supporters. You know, the clinching goals in the cup finals, you always want to make sure you get right. You know, you remember the goals that clinch a cup final or the big moments that change a cup final, be it somebody conceding a penalty, you know, Hart scoring the fourth. People make a lot of fuss about Hart's fifth goal against Tibbs, but actually it was the fourth goal that, you know, signed, sealed and delivered the deal for me that day. And that, if you can call the right goal when you know the game is going to be won, you know, Dundee United against Ross County, uh, you know, Goodwillie's goal and, and uh, Conway, I think, was the other one. You know, these goals, you want to get them right. And these, these are the goals that tend to replay. I have to be honest, what I like is when somebody sends me a goal that I've forgotten I've done. You know, uh, I, I have a joke with, uh, you know, Tam McManus, who didn't score a great deal of goals for Hibs, but it just seemed to be that Every goal he did score, I was the commentator for. So I tell him that he was only ever any good when I was commentating. <laughs> um, yeah, but I like that. You know, for some reason, do you remember this goal? It's like, not really. And I'll tell you what, other commentators may be different. I do not have a photographic memory for a, a large number of games. You know, people say, you were at that game, what did you make of that? Well, I, I'll go back and check my notes. You know, you tend to, you tend to forget because you're doing so many games. Um, you, you tend to move on and you don't always sit back. I mean, when I'm doing television and when I was doing a lot more television, I watch back occasionally just to make sure that I'm not repeating myself, that I'm not stuttering, I'm not using the same phrases. And the same with radio, you've got to go back and listen to make sure you're not you know, getting caught on little crutches, if you like, that you tend to lean on. Um, so I'll, I'll listen back. But it's always a surprise when somebody sends me something and say, God, do you remember this? And it's like, well, I think it was Aberdeen against Copenhagen somebody sent me most recently uh, when Aberdeen absolutely annihilated them at Pitodri. And it was, it was just great to watch them back again. The last question I've got, Paul, and I'm putting you on the spot with this one. If you were to make a five-a-side team from your co-commentators over the year, who gets in it? Oh, that, that, that's a cracking question. So, I mean, so to think think back to some of the, the guys that I've had, I mean, I don't think you'd meet a harder defender than Craig Patterson. He's a lovely man, but I would not have crossed him on the football field. And the same would go for Stevie Cowan, who, you know, was Hibs' record goal scorer in the league. Um, you know, Big Stevie's just a lovely guy, but, I mean, you get the feeling that he would go through you <laughs> like an absolute ton of bricks. Um, you know, I've watched Murder McLeod and Gordon Smith play. Billy Dodds, great Great goal scorer. John Robertson would have to be in there as well, simply because, you know, the goals. I'd probably go for a very attacking team. Put Craig Barrison at the back and uh, possibly Billy Dodds, John Robertson, <laughs> you know, and Stevie Cowan supplying the goals at the front. I don't think, I'm, I'm trying to think of I've actually worked with, with, it's probably been a long time since I've worked with a goalkeeper. They, they tend not to be, you know, Jim Layton, I don't think I ever worked with. He was on Radio Scotland um, for, for a while. Uh, Paul Gallagher I worked with a couple of times. I've not worked with too many goalkeepers. Probably need to tell you what, I'll go and go. If they're that good, we'll win. <laughs> Brilliant, great answer. Thank you for your time, Paul. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Callum, it's, it's been really good fun. I wish you all the best for your podcast. Keep enjoying it, because believe me, that's the key to any type of broadcast. If you enjoy what you do, you'll get lots out of it. Brilliant, thank you very much. So we'll dive down to the ocean And we'll make our home in a deep sea cave And our shells will all be open They'll be filled with song, they'll be filled with song We'll dive down to the ocean And we'll make our home in a deep sea cave